Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show and happy Monday. It's Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. Uh, Sadly, as we know, there's still no love lost, however, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And there is a just a stunning, stunning new court filing laying out how special prosecutor John Durham believes that the Clinton campaign spied, spied on Trump both before and after he became president. I mean, specifically saying that they managed to hack into his computer in the executive office of the president. Okay, if if that's true, someone's going to jail, someone other than the lawyer who right now they're allegedly getting this information from. Um, This is enormous. We don't know whether it's true, though. So we're not going to be a Rachel Maddow and assume it is. (laughs) She's gone the other way on Russia the whole time. We'll tell you what is being alleged when uh, one of our favorite people, Victor Davis Hanson, joins us in our next hour. But first, we begin with an exclusive interview today as one of the best in the business calls it a day after the Super Bowl. Michelle Tafoya is widely regarded as the top sideline reporter in all of sports. Uh, She recently made waves discussing off the field topics. You may know her if you're not a sports fan from when she appeared on The View a couple of months ago. And it was it was wonderful. It was like, wait, who is that voice of reason over there who is incredibly smart, armed with facts, not afraid of these other women, uh, especially on dicey issues like race, the NFL, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, She was battling the co-hosts over everything from COVID to critical race theory. And for those who do not know Michelle, here's just a tiny bit of that. Why are we even teaching that the color of the skin matters? Because to me, what matters is your character and your values. Yes, but you know, you live in the United States. You know that color of skin has been mattering to people. Can't we change it that it doesn't? Well, we need white people to step up and do that. But I think that we they've been doing that since the Civil War. And I'm not saying it's perfect. No, 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 they They haven't. What do you mean they haven't? They have. Listen, when you have a country or a state, let's talk about a state where somebody can be hung from a tree and it's okay. That's not okay. Well, it was okay. It was okay in the South. People did it all the time. And no one's disputing that happened all those years ago. Anyway, Michelle was amazing. She's had an incredible career and now she's starting a new chapter and has yet to reveal what it is. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm honored. I'm honored. What everything I've read about you, everything I'm like, I love this woman. This woman and I are going to be friends. Honestly, you're 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 so sensible and you are ready to back up your opinions and you're not like a bomb thrower, but you're like, this is how I feel. Too bad if you don't like it. This is how I how I roll. And weirdly, because, you know, I like to think about myself that way, Michelle, but I don't think if I were to retire from, you know, a career, let's say at NBC or elsewhere, um, I, I, you know, that everybody, every single person would be saying such nice and laudatory things the way they have about you. everyone loves you. Well, not all those women on The View and certainly not their audience. <laughs> no, the women were great, but their audience did not love me. So it's not like I'm universally loved because I, you know, I don't share their opinions. But um, I, it is crazy to me 
I think people that know me, they get me. And it obviously it takes a little while for the rest of the world to get to know uh. you. Um, so that's what I hope to do here now. Yes. Okay. So this is the thing. I mean, it's been a big mystery. Why, why would she be leaving? It's not like you're struggling to make it as a sports reporter, all the Emmys and all the awards. And like, I mean, the list of accolades you've received is really impressive. Plus just the beloved, you know, you're beloved. Al Michaels last night, I think was going to shed a tear that it was your last night. Chris Collinsworth, they all adore you. So, but you've been saying you, you want to do something that exercises other muscles. I can relate to this. This happened at my yeah. career. What, what does that look like? Well, there are a couple things that are starting right this minute. Uh, I am the co-chair now of the Kendall Qualls for Governor campaign in Minnesota, where I've lived for uh, 25 plus years. And um, I've been asked to run for governor, Megan, but it, this is not the right time. I have two kids that are in high school and junior high. I want to see, I've missed so much. So I want to devote some time to my family, certainly my husband included. Um, and but I am willing to step up for this gentleman, Kendall Qualls, and say, we need a change in leadership. We need sensible, reasonable people. And it's just, it's, it, I got to tell you, I wake up every single morning, every morning, and there is a tug at my chest. And that tug is telling me, Michelle, you have to help somehow. You've got to help. And I can't do that in this role as a sideline reporter. This has been a phenomenal career. I've loved every minute of it, almost, except for the freezing cold temperatures in Lambeau Field mm -hmm. in December. <laughs> but other than that, I've loved it. Um, but there is so much work to be done. And I'm sitting around fretting about it and thinking about it constantly. And one thing I've learned is that you can't fret and think and complain unless you're really willing to do something about it. Otherwise, you got to let it go. And I'm not ready to let it go. I'm mm -hmm. really concerned about the future of this country. I I love this country. I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, my family's story is the American dream, both my mom and my dad and me. And I love it. And I know it's there for everyone. And I'm tired of people trying to tell other people that it's a farce or that it's not real or here's why you can't succeed instead of telling people why you can succeed. And so I just, I can't keep it to myself anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I need to be a voice. Yes. Right now is not a good time to be on the sidelines for someone like you. Right. That's exactly what it feels like. And it's a, I, I can't, the only way I can describe it to you, and I, I have a feeling you'll understand this, is like I wake up and something's pulling at my chest, at my heart, at my guts, at my soul. Like it's a, a, a palpable feel go help. And I just couldn't ignore that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't ignore it. And so whether it's a run in the future or not, uh, I am going to stand behind people and with people. And I am going to let my voice be heard, which is just something that you can't do when you're a very public silent reporter on a sports slash entertainment show that is supposed to just make people happy. And uh, NBC was great about saying, look, go, you know, say the things you want to say, be careful. And I don't want to be careful anymore. I don't didn't I did not have that experience with NBC. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm glad I'm glad you had that direction. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different situation. Well, you note that I mean there was a lot I could not that they asked me not to do. I was asked to start a podcast a year or so ago and they said, "You know, can you just hold off?" 
So it wasn't like I was given total freedom. Mm. And, and I, I do understand that. And it's what I signed up for. So I couldn't complain. And, um, and I just waited for the right time. And this seemed everything came together right now with the Super Bowl and everything happening. And I just said, uh, this, this is the time. Honest question. Do you think that if you were a liberal who privately was espousing more progressive values, they would have let you do the podcast? That's a great question. I don't know. You know, I I will say that, you know, I will say this. Bob Costas, my former colleague at NBC Sports, uh, is that person, is more liberal and did some halftime essays during Sunday Night Football over the years Mm. that drew some ire from some of our fans. And I think what fairly NBC wanted to avoid was ticking off their fans of the sport, of the game, of this Mm -hmm. opportunity to escape that stuff. But that was a different day. What's that? That was a different day. I remember that. What didn't he write some dicey piece on the Second Amendment or something about guns? Yeah. but yes. that, but since then, you know, since the wokeification of ESPN and and NBC and all these, you know, sports in general, I just wonder whether they would be saying, you know, if you wanted to go out there and be like BLM and, uh, yeah. you know, trans swimmers should swim and all that stuff. I just can't imagine them silencing you. I don't know. I, I, I never experienced it because I never tried. And, but I also don't know really anyone at NBC Sports with that uh, agenda who has been unleashed. I think, mm. you know, I just don't, but I, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I, I, I do know I felt supported. There were, they let me go speak to police groups. They let me speak on behalf of candidates in small settings. You know, they just, they just, um, they didn't love the view mm, and right. uh, that appearance. And you so, revealed that you were a conservative, basically kind of conservative, they, at least. I mean, knew, but they know that they know that about me. They, right. They I know. But the public that. didn't yeah. necessarily. It's that's different right. when you say, yeah, right. yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and that's the thing. So like I, I, I've told the story before, but one time I was talking to my therapist and uh, it was shortly after I, I left NBC and I had just like launched Instagram. And I don't know how many followers I have on Instagram. It, you know, I really just post dog photos on there. And occasionally I'll, if I do something fun, I'll put something up there. But I didn't have very many followers. And uh, like literally at that moment, Jennifer Aniston had posted one photo and gotten like eight million followers in a day. I'm like, my God, that's incredible. And I was like, well, you know, I think we've established I'm no Jennifer Aniston. And I remember my it was a joke, but my my therapist w- was laughing because he's like, you talk about the most divisive issues in America for a living. He's like, <laughs> she does silly comedies with people who are literally called friends, you know. So I get I get the hesitance, you know, the hesitancy about right. putting you out there with your political opinion. I wish more news organizations would do that. I wish more sports organizations would say that. But it does seem to be especially dicey in the in the eyes of a lot of these execs if you're a conservative because they know instantly you're going to alienate the entire left. The left will not tolerate a conservative newscaster. The tolerant left will not tolerate conservatives. And that's just something that I've learned the hard way. And it's 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 very frustrating. But I think, see, to me, you talk about issues, but you are not a divisive character. You're not a divisive human. So to me, I'd much rather, God love Jennifer Aniston, I'd follow you over her any day if oh, I had Michelle. to make a point. No, that's the God's honest truth because you're smart. You're, you know, look, we talk about things that matter and that's 
what's that's what scares me right now is that not enough people are talking about things that matter. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, I, I'm a, I'm amazed at just people that I talk to now and then how little they know about what's going on in the world in this country, the things that really should be affecting them and opening their eyes, and it's not happening. And you go. It, it must be that the message isn't getting presented the right way or by the right people. And so I guess I hope I'm not thinking too highly of myself, but I do think of myself as sane and, and someone who maybe can help convey the message. Yes. You're a great communicator. I mean, I've watched you enough. No, you're, you're great at it. And that's why you've done so well when the chips are down in like clutch moments. When I remember the one, I'm not a sports person, but that when the one coach collapsed on the field during the halftime, yeah. that made national yeah. news and you handled it so beautifully. You didn't know what was going on. He'd had a stroke, I think. Um, but anyway, that's, you're a great communicator. So you, sometimes we get wrapped up in our world of politics and think everybody's paying attention. And and what you're saying is kind of a good reminder that a lot of people aren't. And, and the fabric of the country is being eroded bit by bit. And you're yeah. right in the heartland. I mean, at some point we have to talk about how a California girl got sucked into Minnesota. I believe it was love. It must have been deep, true love. <laughs> um, but that's a, that's a pretty blue state. So, you know, do you think yeah. you can get through to people out there? I think I, it is a pretty blue state, but I think it's trending purple. It's a really interesting state in that we have what's called the metro, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the surrounding suburbs. And then they have what they call outstate, which is everybody else. And um, I think that outstate is primarily red country. And I think that we're seeing more of it move into the metro because, look, we were right at the heart of the defund movement. We were right at the heart of that. The George Floyd thing happened yeah. right in my backyard. And now initially there was that moment, but now people are seeing carjackings. They're getting scared. They're not feeling as safe in the state of Minnesota as they used to feel. And I think that's really hitting home. Um, so I, I, I like to think that we have a lot of persuadables. I, I, you know, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. And does this mean no more broadcasting or are you going to do the pot? Now you should do the podcast. Now you got, you got to do well, something to keep your voice out there. Yeah, that's, that's the goal uh, is to launch something here. And, and there are many irons in the fire and I'm grateful for this opportunity because it lets me continue to get that message out that that's what I do want to do, that I want my voice to be out there. Um, I, 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 and it's purely out of, I remember someone sat me down once and said, there are three reasons people run for office. Number one, they want power. Number one, they want popularity uh, or number or two, they want popularity or number Mm -hmm. three, they really want to serve. And I said, well, for me, it's, I really want to serve. I I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the power of what this country is built on. And I'm terrified for my kids and their kids and yours and everybody else's that, as you put it, the fabric's going to get torn apart to a point where, we're not recognizable anymore. And I believe there are enough people to save it, but also people are being s- silenced or afraid to speak out. The number of friends I have that say, oh, I, I don't want to talk politics. You know, I don't want to say that. I am afraid to say this on Facebook. I, yeah. Fear to speak, fear to express yourself. That's as un-American as it gets. And I'm going to fight it every step of the way. 
I love that. I love that. I can relate to this so fully. I was on the couch for a long time after I left NBC, first licking wounds and then just being like, I don't know what I want to do. I really don't don't want to go back and work for the man. You know, I don't want to get myself in the same situation where I have some prick boss. Um, I just, you know, I've done that. And then the whole world exploded between COVID and then George Floyd happened in May of 2020. And I was like, I've got to get back out there. I the, the lies that are being told about our country, about us, about like we we've got to push back. And it was for me too the thing that in my own way got me off the sidelines. Thank goodness. I mean, your voice is so important. And that, you know, I can't tell you how many people were excited that I was coming to talk to you. Uh, I'm, I'm I, honestly, I'm so so thrilled that you're partaking in this because we do need that pushback. We absolutely do. Mm-hmm. We can't see. There are a lot of people who are afraid right now and that ah, just breaks my heart. And I'm just not one of them. I'm not, yeah. what do I have to fear? I mean, you know, I, the, I don't fear it. Throw me in there. I'll take your barbs. I'll take whatever. I'll go on the view and take that audience booing me. Um, I'll do it because somewhere maybe I can affect one one person. That's that's a start, you know. Um, so yeah, wherever I am, wherever I land, uh, whether it's in my the, the uh, principal's office at my kid's school because I think they're being taught something that I don't agree with, I'm gonna be there. And now I have the time and the freedom to do that. I love it. I want to see more of it. And I want to hear more of it. I'm just looking for it. Yes. Okay. We have a little bit of you on The View because I love this moment. You're battling about Colin Kaepernick. And unlike the ladies of The View, you actually knew what you were talking about. <laughs> like they messed with the wrong person. They're used to having some some shill on there. It was like, well, I don't believe in kneeling. And you were like, you know, and, and he, whatever. You were like, let's go. I've got my facts. And here's just a little bit of that. This is SOT5. But the white owners have prevented him from doing it. They've colluded from uh, and, and they have the power to they have the, they have all the power to prevent him from doing the one thing that he loves. If they believe the he could win them a Super Bowl, he would be on a team right now. I promise you that. I promise you that. I, I think and he lost everything because of the stand that he took. And there is no owner in the NFL to this day that has the courage to take him back. A lot they of, a lot have of teams have tried him, him out. I will tell you that. I know my stuff, too, on this. A lot of teams have tried him out. And he didn't lose everything. In fact, I would say he's gained a whole lot. He is now an, a leader of a movement. He's got a Netflix series. He's got Nike endorsements. He lost got one m- thing he wants to do. Well, you, yeah. you know, I, I don't get to do what I want to do either. And sometimes yeah, life but, just ain't fair. And it's yeah, but I think we can all, uh, all of us can agree that there's probably a lot to this story. We still don't know. I'm oh, not sure. you're all gonna groan I'm at me. Sure. Okay, bring I'm it on. Sure. Bring People it on. Feel That's like view, honey. They- so this is the moment at which you lost your potential role co-hosting the View because you made everyone <laughs> look dumb. <laughs> well, I, you know, look, um, it was it was disheartening because it, I, as much as they were saying, you know, he lost the one thing he wants to do with his life. Well, look. Is everyone in America entitled to do the one thing that they want to do with their life if that's becoming the star starting quarterback for an NFL team? No. There are 32 guys out there who get that job, and it's for a whole lot of reasons, and it's not just whether or not they can throw a football down the field. Um, Look, 
Colin Kaepernick, they settled his lawsuit. The guy that was in on it with him, Eric Reed, they settled with him too. He's still playing in the NFL, Eric Reed. So mm. uh, to, to suggest that, you know, Colin's the only, Colin lost out and he's never going to play again. Well, Colin made a lot of decisions about, he did a tryout. He said, hey, come, come, come look at me throw everyone. I'm going to do this throwing demonstration and you can all come scout me. And then at the last minute, he moved the site of that. Now they'll say, well, because he didn't want cameras there. Well, these are decisions you have to make. What is it you really want? Do you not want cameras there? Or do you really mm. want a legit shot at getting back into the NFL? Which is it that you want? And you make those decisions. And sometimes the way to getting where you want to go uh, is, is making some compromises. I love the story of Amelia Earhart. And the first time she was asked to get in a plane and become the first woman to, to help fly a plane, it was as the navigator, not as the pilot. It was as the co-pilot. And she could have been offended and said, no, no, it's either all me or nothing. Well, she didn't. She said, this is an opportunity. I'm going to do it. She did it. And now we all, she's a household name and off, you know, sadly for terrible reasons. But the point is she saw her path. You can't have everything your way in this life. You Mm. work your way around and through the obstacles. If he really really wanted the the one thing he wanted Megan in this life was to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. He'd be one right now. And you know, given that he had the talent, but he made some business decisions and they didn't necessarily. And and I think he knew what he was risking. And I think that there are legitimate complaints about race in the NFL and everywhere else in America, but that's not why Colin Kaepernick's not in the NFL. Mm. It does make you think like, if Tom Brady took some controversial stance on something before he retired, mm-hmm. they they would still hire him. I mean, like talent in the end wins out because they're capitalists. They want to make money off of you. They want a winning team. It's exactly right. And they'll spend a fortune to do it and just ask the highest paid athletes in the NFL. It is about winning. Um, but I do know for a fact that teams talk to Colin Kaepernick. They talk to him about because really. At that point in his career, backup was the only position that was available to him for a number of reasons. He was a good quarterback. He had a really good season the year they went to the Super Bowl. He was not Tom Brady. He was not Matthew Stafford. He was not those guys. Trust me, I think if he were, if he had that kind of talent, he would have found his way onto a roster because you're right, they want to win. But he also made that decision. He made that decision. That if I'm going to any team, all of this is coming along with me. If, you know, I've got to be able to do and say what I want. And even if I'm a backup quarterback, I'm still going to, you know, do and say what I want and maybe bring this along with me. And I'll tell you this as well. Teams don't necessarily want to bring all of that with you unless you're Tom Brady. Or Aaron Rodgers. That's right. I mean, Aaron so, Rodgers, you know, so it's it's, it's not it's, the same as like discriminating against him because he stood up against racism. It's correct. are you going to be a, like a political activist looking to capitalize on every wrong move a coach makes, a player makes, a fan makes? Like I, I can relate to this in a way. I mean, when I, you know, got involved in sort of 
I was sort of drafted into the Me Too movement in a way. It was never something I wanted to be affiliated with. You know, it was like, I'm going to do the next right thing. And before you know it, that led to a whole cascade of things happening. But my point was, I didn't want to be affiliated with any movement. I don't really like activism. I just it's not my thing. But I understood in not backing Roger Ailes, I could never work again. It was possible that I would never work again because all of our companies, for the most part, are run by men. And, you know, maybe they would look at me and say she doesn't she's not loyal to uh, to the men who run these companies. And therefore, I don't want. So you make your own decisions. Right. That wouldn't have been illegal for somebody to do that to me to say she's a she's a headache. You know, she she might turn on me. I don't want I get it. Um, And by the way, if you're a shitbag, I might. Um, that's why I don't have a boss now. <laughs> and isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, that's but we awesome. all make our own but choices. Th- choices, choices. And and I, I, you, you just put it so well. I don't know that there's a whole lot more I can add to that. But you're you are spot on that every player in the NFL comes with a set. And, and, and there have been plenty of players speaking out against racism, which is a welcome thing to see and hear. But they've done it in a way that hasn't been detrimental to their team. Mm, that's such a good point. And you also you also pointed out, you know, it's tough to cry a tear for Colin Kaepernick with his Nike deal. And I mean, his Netflix deal. It's like, could you please spare me? Cry me a river. I know. I know. Right. Right. Again, uh, I think he's going to be financially just OK. Yes. I was Sonny Hostin's talking about him like he's homeless on the street. Like, you know what? He's good. He clearly wants to do social activism. He's doing it and he's getting paid tens of millions of dollars. So move on to your next cause and we'll see if we feel sorry for that one. All right. Michelle Tafoya is amazing. She's staying with us. I'm going to squeeze in a break and then we have so much more to go over. So don't go away. All right, Michelle. So I I did watch the Super Bowl last night. Unlike you, I was not on the 50 yard line, <laughs> but I <laughs> watched it home with my kids. And it was so funny because, of course, my I have two boys and a girl they, and they were watching. They were asking about the players. And then you popped out. I'm like, hey, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. They're like, you are. Oh, my gosh. Like, suddenly you I'll became the biggest star. <laughs> they were very excited for our exchange. And then this moment happened and they were even more excited. Here's soundbite one from last night. Michelle interviewing Aaron Donald, the star defender of the Rams, after his big Super Bowl win. What did you see on that last play that enabled you to do what you did and make that stop? Strange, strange. You know, one last play. To be world champs, give it everything you got. I found the way to get to them. We made a play and we won. That's all that matters. So you talked about the confetti, the feeling. I know you're going to get a chance to hug that Lombardi trophy that you wanted to hug for so long. How does this measure up to what you thought it might be like, Aaron? It's the best feeling in the world, man. I, God is great. God is great. I just, I'm, I'm lost the word. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I mean, this is a blessing. This is a blessing. It was a great moment. And by the way, it was a great follow up because he had said moments earlier, I've, I've dreamed of this. I've dreamed of this. And it seems like a simple question. Like, how does it measure up? But it's actually not. It was a clever way to round back to it and to the emotion and bring us there again and get him to expand on it. And it that was like the moment of the night. That's what that's what you're looking for, just to make people at home feel something. Yeah. And he I mean, I was feeling it from him. He was sobbing by the time I got to him. We were, 
you're in this moment of chaos right after the game ends up. You're getting Aaron Donald go. And there are two full teams plus all their staffs and family and PR on the field. And you're trying to find your guy. And um, fortunately, I mean, I had help, obviously, but it, you're desperately and you, you want to do it live. So you're trying to get it immediately. And by the time I got to him, he was just he was crying so hard. It was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, we had spent time with Aaron. I mean, I've spent time with him over the years, just knowing what kind of competitor he is, what this meant to him. I, it's hard to explain because I think people think, you know, it's already so glamorous and so amazing to just be an NFL player. There is a an enormous step that changes in your life or that you take in your life once you become a world champion. It's something that no one can ever take away. All your regrets are released because your career has meant it. It's been worth it. And I know that's what this was for Aaron. And nobody works harder than that man. Um, and so to see him able to do it, to achieve that final play, and then to be able to soak it in, it was, it was really, it was beautiful to watch. All right, now I'm getting emotional because I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about that was mm-hmm. your last Super Bowl. Like that was a culminating moment for you too. I don't know why I'm feeling emotional about this, but I but like it was a big night for you too. And and to spend your last night reporting on the sidelines at the Super Bowl and celebrating whoever's win, probably in, in your view, although you're from California, so maybe you like the Rams. Um, that must have been great. Like your your colleagues in the booth giving you an emotional goodbye. Do we have, I think, yeah, we've got Al Michaels. Here's Al Michaels. This is SOT 16. A couple of things. Number one, Michelle Tafoya retiring from sportscasting. Michelle, we love you. You have been so much fun. And uh, we'll hear a lot more from her. You and I don't know what the future holds, pal. Yeah, like, I mean, how many people were watching last night, saw that moment? You know, it's just like a moment, but it's it means something. I, it did. But I'll tell you what you didn't see that really was shocking and surprising to me. So I finally was getting ready to leave the field. And I said, and I was, I had a couple people with me, but I stopped and I said, I should, I should turn around and look at this field Uh just kind of, because I hadn't been able to soak it in yet. So I turned around, I'm in the kind of right outside of a tunnel and I'm looking at the whole, the stadium is beautiful, by the way. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking at the lights and I'm looking at this place where I've spent the last 25 years of my life as kind of like my workplace and that I would never stand right there again in that role with that kind of view and that kind of access and that kind of excitement and that kind of feeling. And I lost it and I had been keeping it together all week. I hadn't been thinking about it because I just had a job to do. And I was looking forward to getting on with Megan Kelly on Monday morning. And I was just like, go, go, go. And all of a sudden I just, I lost it. And I just started crying and I didn't want anyone to see it. I'm just like going like this. And, but I didn't want to walk away still. I wanted to just look. And I said to myself, this is, this is really weird and sad, but I've got to just look at, I got to, so I got to look at this and not forget that this is what I've done for 25 years. It's been a privilege. It's been fun. It's been hard. This is the last view, Michelle, just take it in for another minute. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So that was, that was when it all came crashing home as to, I I won't be standing on a field again anytime soon. Meanwhile, the the fans were like, Bengals fan. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jeez. Good Lord. Save it for the sideline, lady. <laughs> um, no, but I get it. It would be emotional. And I and I I think that's important to take stock. Because change, while I totally believe in it, I I I think, you know, you can't be willy-nilly about it, but rush to change. If you're feeling stale, I, I like it. It's always worked for me. I don't understand those people who live in the same house for their entire life and like have the same job for their entire life. Like I need more. I need to mix it up more than that. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And the goodbye part before the new part is the hardest part of it. Right. Make, once you've made the decision, like the separation and the end of something, that's most of the reason why most people don't do it. But it's it's worth it in the end. I I really believe it will be. I've been thinking about this change for multiple years. Um, I originally gave notice to NBC, I think, after the 2018 season. I said 2019 would be my last. And then they said, could you just stay on till the Super Bowl? And all kinds of machinations happened. And uh, and so here I am. But, I, you know, I wouldn't trade it. Um, but it has been a long thought out change. Uh exactly what's going to come next exactly specifically i don't know but i like the start i'm having right here right now <laughs> me too is it possible you could wind up on the ticket like is it they've asked and it's doubtful um look in this first year off i kind of want to take it at my own pace and that would not allow me to take it at my own pace i mean i have mm-hmm. to be just off and running eight ten hour days and you know, I, I don't think that would be putting my money where my mouth is as far as my kids go. Um, How old are they now, Michelle? They are 16 and eight and 13, and they okay. don't really need me, but I mm-hmm. kind of need them. And I, I miss so much. And, um, and, and I just, I want to make sure I'm at every baseball game and every soccer game and every basketball game. I want to be there. I want to share that time with my husband. He's been just flying solo for so much of it. And, um, and so, you know, I want us to find a new family footing. Um, listen, it's tempting, uh, but I do feel like I'm, I can better effectuate change. I think, um, in the short term, at least by just using my voice, you have time. Yeah. And I, you're 56 years old. I I'm 51 and I laugh because I feel old sometimes. And then I look at how they talk about the Supreme Court nominees and they're like, she's only 50. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. Just compare yourself to the Supreme Court. Oh, you're so good. Yeah. Like she could do 35 years. I'm like, yeah, I feel so much better. Plus 50 is the new 30, Megan. So, you know, that's what Tony Robbins tells me. All I have to do is have something called peptides and uh, I'm going to live forever. According to him, check buy out his buy his new book and you will too. I like it. Speaking of which, um, my husband, Doug, was out of town last night. He texted me about the Super Bowl show and said, I thought it was amazing. And uh, he said, best Super Bowl show I've seen in years. And I said, literally, my friend just texted me saying, if you like the Super Bowl show, it's time to get your colonoscopy. <laughs> they were suggesting it's for old people, Michelle. <laughs> I'm like, I'm concerned because I do like some of these artists. They are more my era and yours, too, and Doug's, too. So what did you make of it? Like, what was the buzz there about the big the big show? The buzz in the, the, the arena was like awesome. And um, it, it's, it's it, you know what, I'll tell you what, I've done five Super Bowls and every time there's a mixed reaction afterward. Mm-hmm. There's one experience that people get inside the stadium and there's a completely different experience people get watching at home. Mm-hmm. But even as we left last night and all the texts are flying and everyone's looking at Twitter and all the rest and the best Super Bowl show ever, halftime show is the best. 
uh, there were some people, I got texts this morning saying, I don't need to see men grabbing themselves at halftime. The NFL should be ashamed of itself. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I, I, I was energized by it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Um, and I, I thought it crossed a lot of, uh, generations because the, the, <laughs> some of that music is transcendent and, uh, like my kids were so impressed. Um, Somebody, I think so it was I, yeah. the the New York Times. I think it was referred to it as oldies presenting old. I'm like oldies. What? That's bullshit. That <laughs> really? is. I, I that 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 kind of gets past me. I don't get that at all because I, you know, I, I mean, I if they had gone any newer into some of the rap and R and B that's out there, it wouldn't have been. We would, couldn't have televised it. By yeah, the way, that's so, exactly right. Well, I know? I was like you. I was like that old lady. Like um. Well, your friend, I guess I should. I was like, I, I'm seeing too much. I don't need to see the gyrating. You know, people watch this with their young kids. And then I actually said, I actually said the line of, yeah, there's no melody. You know, back when I was a kid, I mean, I've become my grandpa. <laughs> my music had a melody. <laughs> this is happening so much. I know it's crazy. It's It's funny. <laughs> A little behind the scenes story. So um, after the game, I finally made my way back to what the, our little production hub. It's actually quite large. But so Al and Chris were waiting there for me. And then I saw this whole group amassing. And there was Eminem, Mr. Mathers. And he is diminutive. He's small. Uh, I feel like a giant next to him. But he was waiting. He loves, he's always loved Al Michaels, just thinks the world of Al Michaels. And so they were talking and, and I was just sort of like peeking and, and Al said, Hey, uh, do you know Michelle? And he brought me over and, and he looked at me, Eminem and he goes, Oh shit, you're that woman. And, and I was like, <laughs> wow, you know who I am. I mean, I was just, I was so floored, Dying. but, um, I mean, seriously, but I, I don't know, you know, it, every year it never fails. You're going to have people who hate it. Yeah, that's right. Well, one thing I didn't hate was uh, there wasn't a mask in sight. There, the mandate is still in place. The indoor California. I said to my assistant, I'm like, is the mask mandate lifted? Like, I, <laughs> no, Might it's as not. Well be. Right. Like, Might as well. There were more bare faces than masked. I totally, 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 totally. And there are rumors that they're going to drop this mask mandate tomorrow here in California or in Los Angeles. I was thinking you, if you do that, you're going to look so bad for mandating these masks at the Super Bowl. I mean, it's going to be ridiculous. But yeah. by the way, nobody wore them. And they said, you know, we're going to have people walking around enforcing and everyone's going to get a free N95 when they walk in. Guarantee you, by the way, I say it shouldn't guarantee, but I strongly suspect those N95s were made in uh, China because the one I was given was made in China. So bravo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, look at these pictures. There's not one human in a mask these are all these celebrities are on their chin they're right exactly all these celebrities who are constantly lecturing america with the, the there's oh. not, not even pretending there's not even like the mask hanging from the ear the way some people do but forget the celebrities it was like all the california authorities from the governor to once again the la mayor i mean it's their mandate <laughs> and even they so michael brendan doherty of the of national review who i love he was like it's officially the end of the, the pandemic it's over it sort of began with a sports moment remember there was a basketball player who had like touched all the microphones yes. and he got it and it made national news and it ended it ended officially last night when i mean in the in the bluest state with the most restrictive mask policies everyone including the officials who put them into place blew them off entirely 
That's why people are so pissed off and sick of the authorities and sick of listening to people who are, have lost so much credibility in all this. I think, Megan, that's the other scary thing we're enduring right now is where do we look for true leadership and credibility? Right now, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. So I say, okay, in our house, this is how we're going to do it. I don't care what uh, everyone else, this is. So everyone's kind of left on their own right now, which might be the best thing. But eventually, where who are we going to trust? Yeah. No, I mean, after this, like truly, especially in California, do not wear a mask. Like I, I, the thing that's infuriating is the children have no choice because they work, you know, they go into school and these crazy teachers are like, put your mask on and they're little. Oh. So they do it and they're, you know, they have to be respectful of authority, but we don't. And I, like, especially in California, you like, take it up with Governor Newsom. Take it up with Mayor Garcetti. I'm not wearing, why should they? Anyway, all right, I have to pause. I have to do one more break and then I'm coming back to Michelle DeFoy because okay. there's still much more to discuss. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, a weird question for you, but not really. Uh, as a woman who's made it in the man's world, I mean, it's a world and there are a lot of men in it, but they do tend to run uh, sports and sports television. Um, what do you make of Joe Biden's decision to say I'm picking a black woman for the Supreme Court? I'm sure you got some feelings on this. I do, too. But I'm really genuinely curious to know what you think. If that was really what he wanted, go ahead and do it. and Don't announce it to the world. Just do yes. it and let yes. it stand on merits. You didn't need to make that like your agenda just just do it uh i just don't you know i know there are credible women of color out there so go nominate one but don't her. you know he kneecapped the choice before he named her to help himself it's awful don't even get me started yeah okay good because i because you know i get it and i know you've been saying i I don't want to be known as the best women's sports reporter i want to be known as the best sports reporter and that's been the key to your success you, why would you put these things in your way that are sort of uh, made up constructs of, I mean, yes, there are men and there are women, as you said, but I don't go and battle just women in my industry. I went and competed with everyone and I didn't think of myself and put my check this box. I mean, if I could, if I were going to check boxes, I'd be doing it all day. Oh, I'm Hispanic with a little Irish blood and I'm brunette and I'm <laughs> less than five foot eight. So that's the group I'm going to compete with. No, right. just go compete as a human being. That's right. Okay, let me talk to you about you personally, because there's some interesting stuff in your background. Um, I could relate to your struggles with infertility um, because in my case, you know, I got married to my husband. I had a starter marriage. So then I, my real marriage to Doug didn't start until I was 37. So I was kind of getting long in the tooth for the babies. And I could relate to your frustration and trying to get pregnant and so on. But I did want to circle to the part of you wound up, you had you had one biological child who was just like a surprise after all your IVFs and miscarriages and some very tough times. And then, and that's the way it is, right? As soon as you relax or give up, the, you oh, no. get, 
right? <laughs> and then for your second child, you decided to adopt. And I read that you said about your husband, your husband phrased it as, now we get to adopt, not have yeah. to, get to. Correct. That's, it was one of the most freeing things he ever said to me. I, I, my husband's awesome. And he said that now we get to adopt. And, and it, it's just been the greatest gift I've ever been given. And I hope I do get to meet her mother face to face someday. And if she wants to, we will do that because I want to thank this woman for giving Mm -hmm. me the greatest gift I've ever had the pleasure of having in my life. And she just keeps on giving. It's been amazing. And Michelle, I talked to so many women who are so worried. They don't want to use donor eggs or they don't want to adopt. And they're like, (laughs) you know, I always laugh because everybody thinks their genes are the best. Like, oh, what if I get somebody else's, you know, and you're kind of looking at half of them like, that might not be such a bad thing. You should maybe take somebody else's. But you said the same thing my friends who are adoptive mothers have said, which is you told you forget it's like that thing is a barrier to entry only. You know, the fact that this was this baby was born to another woman that they, yeah. they do become your child, 100 percent your child. Totally and completely. And whenever she calls me mommy, it's that much more special. I and mean, even at 13, she's still calling me mommy. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes away. And this is your child. This is your charge. This is your love. This is, and don't even get me started with my husband. I mean, he, she's got him wrapped. It, it, it's, and it is interesting. Your own child is almost like a lab experiment. Oh, that part's you. And this part's me, you know, mm-hmm. and then this adoptive child the things that she brings to our family that have nothing to do with my husband nor me are amazing. And we love it. Like she does not like chocolate. So she's clearly biologically not ours. You know, it's like little things like that. She's a great athlete, all these things. And it's just, it's so incredible to watch and help her grow. And yet I, if there's one piece of advice I could give, it's you will find your family somehow, some way, let it happen because, oh my God, I can't imagine my life without her. Mm-hmm. So is that what happened? The, the wonderful husband that she loves so much as well? It, he pulled you to Minnesota? Because I truly, I'm, I'm hung up on like who that was raised in California would move to Minnesota. What? Well, the weather in California is so boring. It's the same day after day. I wanted a challenge. No, I, honestly, I, I left California. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina for my first job. I wanted to leave there. Minnesota offered me a chance to cover the Minnesota Vikings. I wanted to cover the NFL. And and then I met my husband because honestly, Megan, when I first got to Minnesota, it was 30 below with wind chill. And I said, what am I doing? And then I saw the change of seasons. And then I met my husband and, you know, it's turned into home. It's crazy. But um, there we are. Uh, You know what? He must be amazing in bed. It's just good. Like. (laughs) We'll talk later. Yeah. We'll have a drink sometime in New York. It's done. I can't wait. Michelle, please come back. There's so many more things I wanted to get your opinion on. You're a great talker, a great woman, a great professional. You don't need it, but good luck with all the next chapter. I appreciate it. And at the risk of sounding like I'm just blowing smoke here, you're, you've been a big influence on my career and my decision making about all of this. You're a phenomenal voice. I'm so grateful for you in this space, in this, I hate that, in this space, in this Mm -hmm. arena. Keep it going. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love that. I appreciate it. All right. Lots of love to you and the fam. You too. 
Okay, I want to tell the audience that uh, up next, we are bringing on Victor Davis Hanson, and we're going to bring you, we're going to try to break down this rather complex story uh, in terms you can understand, because it's, if true, it's huge. It could definitely result in criminal charges for a whole host of people, and it's being completely blacked out by most in the mainstream media. I mean, it is being ignored, and trust me, if the shoe were on the other foot, um, and and Donald Trump had been accused of spying on Hillary Clinton's winning White House campaign, it would dominate the news cycle everywhere. But it's not. We'll be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here to discuss the Clinton campaign's alleged spying on Donald Trump's campaign and on him while he was in the White House, as well as many other items in the news. My pal, Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Victor, thank you for being back on. What a day. This Durham uh, bombshell is significant. Um, Again, unconfirmed. These are allegations and and a report that he is getting ready to say that uh, or, or is pursuing claims that the Clinton campaign attorneys paid a tech company to infiltrate Donald Trump's um, campaign headquarters at Trump Tower and the executive office uh, that he held in the White House, his computers, wanting to create a connection with Russia, hoping to find a connection with Russia. And if none existed, hoping to create a narrative that one nevertheless existed. Just a bit, a little bit more. This is a the the Daily Wire's Cabot Phillips did a good job explaining this today. Um, yeah. This goes back to a, a meeting that the Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman had with the FBI back in 2016, two months before the election. Uh, Sussman's been indicted uh, for lying to the FBI, saying, I have no client. I'm just here to give you information about Donald Trump's connection to Russia. Meanwhile, it turns out he did have a connection. He worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign, didn't disclose it. So he's already been charged with that. But more information appears to be coming out of Sussman. Um, Durham now says Sussman presented information um, to them and that Sussman was working with a tech executive to obtain this data from Trump in very sketchy ways, Uh, that they infiltrated data from Trump's private residence during the campaign. And then after the campaign hacked into hacked into the executive office, um, trying to dig up dirt on Trump and if none existed to create it. So (laughs) What do you make of this? And, you know, the, the one layer deeper on the Durham investigation into what Hillary was up to when Trump was running and sitting as president. Yeah, I think we go back to the times that it explains how audacious they were, because remember that Durham is just basically saying, well, you build them and you actually said alpha on your your charge that you charged. Uh, you were working for Perkins Coie and I guess you charged the DNC who was being you know, funded with the Hillary campaign uh, campaign money. So it's pretty evident that they felt that they were exempt from any scrutiny. The other, another really bothersome angle to that, Megan, is that the FBI seems to be almost in cahoots 
with the, with the Clinton campaign, but because this was seeded and the FBI was investigating, and we know that the FBI at one time paid uh, Christopher Steele as an informant, even though that wasn't their idea. They were put on to uh, Christopher Steele by people within the DNC or Perkins Cole via Glenn, Glenn Simpson, et cetera. So it also raises this question, and this is all in light of the Hunter laptop and the going after James O'Keefe, that what is the FBI doing now? It seems to be a retrieval or an auxiliary of the DNC and, and Democratic candidates. That That's bothersome. And then the other thing is Donald Trump, we all, and I shouldn't say we all, but the country considered him unhinged when he said that they've been wiretapping me or putting wires up. And everybody said, what an archaic way of thinking. He's paranoid. And he apparently had been tipped off because, remember, he moved out of Trump Tower or he ceased communicating. I went back just uh, when I heard this story also, Megan, just a final thought. And I was amazed at how many people, the New York Times especially, but also the Washington Post and major columnists that kept getting angry that this was not leading to a conviction or this was not being a scandal that would on, would destroy the transition of Trump or even the presidency. So nobody has come out and said, We're, I'm sorry that we published accounts of this and we took the FBI and basically Mark Elias uh, seeding the media. Nobody's ever said, it's just as they've never renounced Christopher Steele. So, and I don't think they ever will either. Mm-hmm. Correct. They haven't. Um, they're still standing by him. And even uh, Adam Schiff is coming out and saying, well, you know, that they'll deal with him in the court as appropriate. But, you know, why should we have had had questions about him? You know, he came forward, seemed like like a legitimate guy. Really? <laughs> there were a lot of questions about him right from the get go, even to, you know, regular reporters. Never mind if you're Adam Schiff. So you raise a really interesting point. If this was happening, if if what because what they seem to be alleging is that there was a contract with an outside tech firm to to run servers and monitor and or monitor servers that were being used inside the White House and that whoever this so-called unnamed tech executive is, instead of just doing that, actually started mining data and farming it off to some university researchers with the goal of finding dirt. That would show Trump had a connection with Russia that was somehow illicit while he was the sitting president. And um, so that whatever he kept can do kept doing that. Now, the question is, if that were happening, wouldn't our intelligence officials have known about it? Wouldn't the FBI know if that were happening to a sitting president? Never mind prior when he was running, when it was just the campaign. And why wouldn't they, Victor, have raised it with Trump with the president at the time when it was going on? Well, I think the answer to that, Megan, your second question is, is found in something James Comey said when he met in a private conversation with the president of the United States as, as the director of the FBI. And he assured the president that he was not the object of an ongoing FBI investigation, which he knew to be untrue that he was. And second, he went immediately out into his vehicle and use an FBI apparatus, a communications device, a pad, I guess, and then recorded it all. And then subsequently when he was fired, he leaked that. So the FBI, and for a variety of reasons, this is just one of the very minor ones, but for a variety of ongoing reasons, whether it's missing FBI phones during the Mueller investigation or 
uh, Mueller staggering the ex-FBI head, staggering the dismissals of, dismissals of Stroke and Page, so there didn't seem to be any connection between them, and they were reassigned rather than fired for their unprofessionalism, or James Baker talking to sources and probably leaking it to Yahoo or other sources right before the uh, 2016 election. And then we have Kevin Kleinsmith submitting a fraudulent uh, doctored document. So we could go on and on, but there's something existentially wrong with the FBI. And I don't know if it's confined to the Washington echelon, but they seem to be an extension of the progressive movement or the DNC or whatever Democratic uh, administration is in power. And they don't seem to, when you look at what they have done with the Hunter laptop, they had that in their possession. They sat on it. Mm-hmm. And they they didn't come out because they were pressured because of the campaign. Uh, the election was approaching in 2020. And then they kind of had more performance art with James O'Keefe, who hasn't been charged yet for all of the publicity that seems to have been uh, provided to the New York Times that almost immediately aired that story. So I don't know what to make of it because we all we all have respect for investigatory agencies. But I think it's a larger trend that all of us that are traditionals who have traditionally supported the CIA, mm-hmm. the FBI, the NSA, the Pentagon, they have lost the support of half the country. And it's not just me, you know, pontificating. If you look at the latest poll, the Pentagon, only 45% in a recent Reagan library poll expressed confidence in the military. Uh, when you look at the polls of the FBI, it's even more dismal. And when you have people like James Comey 245 times saying he can't remember while under oath or Andrew McCabe on three occasions lying under oath to federal investigators or John Brennan on two occasions lying under oath about the CIA tapping into Senate computers or that drone operations did not have any collateral damage or James Clapper lying under oath. And he in fact, he was caught. He said that I gave the least untruthful answer when he said the NSA doesn't spy on people or Adam nice. Schiff, the same thing. And so I, this is all a narrative that that we've lost confidence in what were very traditional American institutions. This all appears in a John Durham motion in support of alleging conflicts of interest in the case. So no one's been there haven't been new indictments handed down, but there absolutely could be, you know, Trump known for his um hyperbole on a lot of issues may not be wrong when he says this is worse than Watergate. I mean, if this pans out, if if she and her campaign were actively spying on the sitting president on his campaign for president, then on the sitting president and working to create dirt that would possibly bring him down. She definitely could be facing criminal charges, she or whoever they can actually pin it on. Um, And this would be an enormous, enormous ethical and legal breach. We're, we're not there yet, but that's what's being alleged. Essentially, we'll hear, we'll see the names filled in. Um, but just by way of info, uh, Victor, back in 2016, people are now pulling up her old tweets, and it was October 31st, 2016, right before the election. She tweets out, "Computer science scientists." have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. Oh, which computer sciences are those, Hillary? Right? I mean, now we're, we're getting a better picture. Then 
She shared a statement from her campaign's then senior policy advisor, Jake Sullivan. He's now national security advisor, this guy, saying as follows. A couple highlights from what he was saying. They're stoking the fire. This is the point I'm going for. This could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. Secret hotline may be the key to unlocking the mystery of Trump's ties to Russia. It raises even more troubling questions in light of Russia's masterminding of hacking efforts that are clearly intended to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. Hello, pot, meet kettle. And here's the last one. Um, can only assume federal authorities will now explore this direct connection. Oh, really? You can only assume that? Uh, can only assume federal authorities will now explore this direct connection between Trump and Russia as part of their existing probe into Russia's meddling in our elections. Meanwhile, the Clinton campaign lawyer Sussman is in there telling the FBI, I've unearthed it. This is the thing. You've got to look into it. No, I have no client. It's not the Hillary Clinton campaign. I'm just a good citizen. And now we know all this other stuff was happening behind the scenes. This is this is criminal, Victor. It is criminal. And it begs the question, why did Hillary Clinton have such confidence that she could make these statements publicly when privately she knows she had some exposure? I think the answer is that uh, she had a series of Clintonites that were seated deeply within the Obama administration. And we can see what Bruce Orr was doing at the time she was talking. He was seating the dossier and talking to people in the Justice Department. Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton had been meeting on that tarmac. And about what? I don't know. Probably the Hillary Clinton email investigations. That was kept quiet. At the same time, Andrew McCabe was point man on the investigation while his wife was running for office in Virginia and getting Clinton-related PAC money from Terry McCall's PAC. And the second thing was that this had been habitual for her, Megan. Remember the Uranium One scandal where she and the State Department committee had pretty much allowed uh, 20% of North American uh, uranium to fall in the hands of Russia at a time when Bill Clinton had been given $500,000 a speak on just one occasion in Moscow. And when there were a lot of multi-million dollar gifts to the Clinton administration from Russian related sources. And then we had, of course, the missing email scandal. And then we had the Steele dossier scandal. And I don't know whether what to make of it. Maybe you do. And it's either one of two things that this repeated violation of ethical and probably legal statutes then it emboldens her and she says, well, if they didn't get me for that, then they won't get me for this and they won't get me for this. And she just becomes more emboldened or it starts to erode, erode her credibility. And at some point, people are so embarrassed, they say this can't go on. She's just mm-hmm. so uh, flaunting the law that let's let's stop it. I don't know what will happen, but it, no one, no other political figure in our generation has so deliberately and ostentatiously broken the law, in my opinion. You know, they say, and I've I've talked to convicted felons about this, crossing the first ethical line is the hardest. And once you've done that, you're pretty much good. You know, it's sort of once you sort of abandon the commitment to following an ethical code and that's the biggest move. And then you're on the other side and it's a party. You know, it's like whatever you want. I, I think you're right, especially when she said, I mean, she went around. Uh, for most of 2016, suggesting that Donald Trump, I shouldn't say suggesting, explicitly saying Donald Trump was not legitimately elected. They had all of those people, uh, celebrities, grade B celebrities, making those commercials to reject the electors and have them 
defy their constitutional duty and reject Trump. And then almost immediately, she said uh, she was part of the resistance, she said. And then when Joe Biden, in the closing days of the campaign, she suggested to him not to accept the uh, results of the election if he lost. And then she, of course, during Trump's administration, said he was illegitimately elected. What I'm getting at is that there's this psychological mechanism of projection. She seems to project Russian collusion when she's using Russian-related sources herself. She seems to suggest that it's dishonest, and it is, and it's probably illegitimate to question a a sanctioned U.S. election, but that's what she does all the time, sort of like Stacey Abrams. And then finally, you know, we all feel that Trump goes over the top, he's paranoid, he makes these outlandish statements. But if you or I or any of us in our own profession had been subject to what he was subject to, where they tried to destroy his campaign by the use of a fake Russian uh, dossier, Russian-related dossier, and a discredited British spy who's not supposed as a foreign national to participate, and then Hillary Clinton through three firewalls, the DNC, Perkins Coie and GPS was funneling dirt against Trump. They tapped uh, Michael Flynn's communications and were going to charge him with archaic statues that somehow he was communicating during the transition with foreign leaders, which they all do. And then we we went right into Mueller for 22 months, found nothing. And then we went into Ukraine. And, and in light of what's happened to Ukraine and what's in light of what the Biden family revelations are about Ukraine, that first impeachment seemed very dubious. So I don't think any president has been subject to such an array of illicit amount of attacks as Trump. Mm-hmm. But because he's so controversial himself, he doesn't he doesn't benefit from sympathy that's accorded to someone that's been on the receiving end of such illegal activity. You know, I'm thinking right now of the the election fraud claims, um, which, you know, none of which he was able to sustain in court. But a fair amount of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. And this story kind of helps you understand how they got there. If you're paying attention to anything that's not mainstream, because the mainstream buries this story and any stories about Durham or they mock Durham, um, you you think it's a joke. You think it's made up. You don't think Hillary spied on Donald at all. And you think he's some sort of weird conspiracy theorist who whenever anything bad happens to him, he just blames, you know, sort of some boogeyman, whether it's Hillary or somebody else or Comey. But these things actually happened. She, her campaign, I mean, there's an indictment alleging that her campaign was up to no good and trying to create this connection. Even before today, we knew that. Um, Not to mention all the things you, you listed, Carter Page ruining his life and so on. And then you get to the election and Trump is saying, no, I'm telling you, they stole it. And a lot of these people who have seen him proven right time and time again and been told by the media, don't be so stupid. You know, there's no way are like, we're not listening to you anymore. Yeah. And that's not your impression or my impression. Remember that notorious Time magazine article where they were bragging that Martin Zuckerberg had injected $419 million in pre-selected precincts in swing states, and they really absorbed the role and the job of uh, state registrar employees, they kind of took it over and they added more mailboxes. They went out and harvested votes. But the point of that article was they they used the word conspiracy as in good conspiracy. We had a good conspiracy of changing the election laws in key states, A, and then they said, B, we injected 
multi-million dollars in swing state precincts. And what the I thought was the most disturbing was uh, they said that we were able to modulate the demonstrations, i.e. Antifa and BLM all of a sudden in August and September and October started to taper off that 120 days. That was so it was really getting the, the middle class swing voter very upset. And they, admit, they admitted in kind of a braggadocio article that this is what they were doing. And yet if anybody on the right or center had written that article, they would have been called a conspiracist. But they were so arrogant and haughty after the Biden win. They were they were bragging how they just manipulated uh, with the help of money. And they, they cited people in the street, demonstrators and the CEOs. And so, it's, it's amazing because I, I used to consume my information and say, all right, well, I know where not to go. You know, I'm not going to go on Reddit to get my info as a news person. Um, I'm not going to I'm going to take in sources from the far left and the far right and the center left and the center right and just sort of make up my own mind about where the truth is. And now it's almost as if I'm getting to the point where I feel like I need to avoid the mainstream altogether. It's just they look at YouTube as, as though it's full of disinformation. I look at them that way. Yeah, I do, too. I, I go back and to 2016 when Trump got the nomination and then during the campaign and right after the election of 2016, Jim Rutenberg of the New York Times, Jorge Ramos of Univision, Christian mm-hmm. Amon Forbes, CNN, they all had the same narrative that traditional journalism could no longer sustain itself because Donald Trump posed such an existential threat to the election process, to global uh, warming, uh, to the border, and all of them had a different take, but they had the same conclusion that journalists must be activists. And that was replicated by the ACLU, said the same thing almost. And so we entered a new era of of journalism that they were going to be activists, and the data showed it. Remember the uh, Shorenstein Center at Harvard in the first 90 days said that the mainstream media, as well as cable news, was 93% negative of the, of the Trump administration. They'd never right. seen anything approximating that. So I think a lot of people just said the media by choice, and you can see it with CNN, especially its, its implosion, decided to be an arm of the progressive movement. And they, they kind of turned off. And it's, it's disturbing because, you know, in my as I get older, my 68 years old and all of these institutions that we all used to thought think were apolitical the corporation wall street social media silicon valley k-12 we knew the university was but uh, entertainment hollywood they've all become they've all become biased in the sense that they don't believe because they think their their ends are so noble or morally superior to everybody that any means necessary if it, even if it if it disrupts their professional code is okay and it's justified there's not going to be anybody who apologizes about this alpha bank uh episode they're just like christopher Steele is unrepentant so it's no Mark they just Elias. bury it they bury it and it goes away unless you seek out alternative media unless you you yeah, turn off yeah. cnn and try to find yourself a fox which most democrats they are watching it but sort of the hardcore believers maybe not and so the people who need to get the information about what she did allegedly uh aren't getting it um okay there's there's a lot more to go over i've got to talk to you about your your piece our elite is no elite at all i was thinking about it last night as i watched sort of the crowd shots at the super bowl and who's who of you know celebrity and political culture and you've got to hear what victor davis hansen has to say on that don't go away that's up next.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So, Victor... I'm looking at sort of the the collection of, you know, our betters last night at the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl halftime show. And I'm thinking, okay, this is this is the so-called elite. This is the who's who of Hollywood and sports and so on. It's like, okay, half the fans in the audience, like whatever, Ben Affleck and, and so on, have had problems so bad that they made national news for weeks. You know, alcoholic, uh, cheating, serial cheating on the wife. And then they, they got these singers out there who are celebrated, who have written songs at a time where we're seeing record murders of police celebrating cop killings. Um, I mean, you know, people accused of felonies left and right. I'm thinking, okay, I don't, to me, they don't feel that elite, but I guess I'm supposed to listen to these people. It's fine to sing and to act and for me to sort of take in the music and take in the acting. But the society wants us to believe they're more than that and treats them like they're more than that. And you had a great piece about how the elites aren't. What are your thoughts? Well, I think there's two issues here, Megan. There's what you and I feel about it. And we have a definite, maybe traditional point of view. So when we see Dr. Dre go up there and mention in, in his lyrics, anti-police and we, i don't know if kendrick lamar said it or not i couldn't tell but he had the don't hate the popo or something the police and then you have a record number of police killed and you're you're banning people like kate smith singing god bless america there's obviously a point of view that the counterculture or people who have they have gripes against the origins or the the progression or the current state of america they don't like it apparently they don't like what it is and this is an avenue but it, what, what's different is this was a national celebration whether we like it or not the super bowl is sort of a national celebration of americana and yet for for these performers and the people that you mentioned to have such a negative or are not a very impressive record themselves that's one thing and then we there's also an abstract standard when we look at all of these people and we say okay Let's see what this generation that calls itself an elite has done. Uh, when we look at the Oscars today and we look at qualities of films in the 40s and 50s and we look at comic books or Marvel comic book uh, remakes or we look at uh, hip hop compared to, I don't know, jazz or folk music or we look at uh, this generation's, I don't know, high speed rail in California versus the construction of the Hoover Dam. Or when I look at the university curriculum, which I was a part of for 40 years, and I see that uh, today's people at places like Stanford University have no idea who Dante is. They don't know. If you ask him what Plato wrote, they wouldn't know. And so, I, and then I look at scholarship and the quality. I, I don't see any improvement, and yet it's juxtaposed to this self-important, arrogant view that they're somehow path, path breakers, and they've created this wonderful new America, and then... This is all aside, Megan, we're looking at the national news and we've had the greatest, this generation gave us the greatest humiliation since 1975 on the rooftop of Saigon in Kabul. 
There is no border. It's not that it's porous. They just arbitrarily decided to violate federal law. We've had the highest inflation in 40 years. We're $30 trillion now in debt. We're printing money at an astronomical rate. And we were the world's greatest oil and gas producer just two years ago. And now we're not. We're going down. Why we're begging the Saudis and Russians to make up the slack. So I don't see anything to be so proud about. That's what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. No, you make a great point because you you take aim at, you know, the Kardashians, their elites. They've reached this by yeah. merchandising and popularizing larger than normal posteriors, you write, posting selfies of their ample boobs and butts. That's amazing. I love that. Um, but then you point out that the brilliant Thomas Sowell or Shelby Seal, Steele, they're not elites. Instead, Ibram Kendi and Joy Reid, they are, right? The juxtaposition, it, it all comes down to politics. What are your politics? And that's why people like Michelle Tafoya do need to be careful about speaking out about their conservative values because these industries will punish her where they wouldn't punish uh, somebody who is necessarily going, you know, equally left, like center left, maybe far left they'd punish, but they would never punish center left. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The arts by nature and academia have always been left center. But what's different now is they have projected the idea that they are in control. And this is the mainstream, even though there's no, there's not very much popular support. And most people don't have an ideology, the 80% in the middle, but they react to perceived momentum or pressure. And they want to be part of a winning team, sort of like no fans when the 49ers are 0 and 10 and, and pack stadiums when they're 10 and 0. But the left has created this illusion that they control all these institutions and therefore the majority of America are with them. And so I think it's very incumbent upon people to keep trying to remind America that they don't have popular support and that they have an agenda that's by any abstract measure, empirical standard is unsustainable. It just won't work. You can't have a country when the elites don't believe in it. They don't think it's better than the alternative. They always look at the sum total of what is wrong with America, and that becomes America rather than incidental to a great nation. Mm. So I, I think it's I think the midterms. We always say these are the most important midterms. Usually they're not. But if there is a if there is a referendum on all of this and is a large Republican victory, not that I'm trying to be a megaphone for the Republicans, I think it will have a profound effect. It'll be sort of like the McGovern era came to a a terrible close and then people started pointing fingers. And then the Democratic Party went to Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and went back. But I think they have to have a political rebuke um, or this will continue. Following up on that, um, I did read you're a registered independent, which I am as well. Why is yeah. that? Because I've, I've, some people might be surprised you're not a Republican. You know, I grew up in a Democratic household and I'm speaking from this farm that was been in my family uh, since 1870 house. Right. I'm, I'm where I'm speaking, is 150 years old. And we were all agrarian, small farmers. My grandparents didn't go to college. And it was the idea of, this is a great country. The Democratic Party gave us Social Security. I had an aunt that was bedridden. And she lived here for 70 years. And she had Social Security disability. When she got that, that was a wonderful thing. And it was the idea that the little guy, the middle class, uh, was the backbone of America. And they felt Fairly or not, that the Republican Party it was easily caricatured as golfers, you know, who are wealthy, the one percent, etc. And then, so I was a Democrat, and then I saw where what we have been talking about—that the Democratic Party is becoming really 
a party of the mega rich or the upper, upper middle class and the very poor, and that the middle class now is gravitated toward the Republicans of all different races. I think that's starting. So uh, I guess that's it was tradition or habit that I that I didn't register as Republican. But there were certain things. I'll be candid, a little bit candid here. During the Bush years, and I don't know how to say it, but in the business that I got into of writing, there were a certain type of Republican pundit intellectual that was condescending to people. And I felt they didn't have a familiarity with the muscular classes. They didn't get out of New York or Washington. And they always were talking about if we just had capital gains, if we can just privatize Social Security without ever having people that their lifeblood was Social Security. So I, even though I was in some ways more conservative than them, especially on the border, they were always telling, I got attacked mm. from all these Republicans. Let the let the market adjudicate the border. When it gets down to $2 an hour, they won't come. But so I, I just thought that I, I got kind of tired of the Republicans. And then, you know, Trump, everybody makes fun of him, but he did bring a nationalist populist flavor to traditionalism and said the middle class, when he started using the word our, our farmers, our workers, I, I thought that was, you know, for all of the criticism of him, there is a movement in the Republican Party to reflect the middle class. And I think that uh, I, I approve that, but I didn't feel comfortable with traditional Romneyism or McCainism. I just, I don't know, the Bushes, mm. I liked them, but uh, I just felt that they were not they weren't part of the world that I see here in southwestern uh, Fresno County, and yet the left had gone unhinged. So I didn't know where to go. So I just mm. stayed an independent. Well, I like that. Independent is you'll make up your mind on a case by case basis. You're not you don't have to subscribe to anything. You know what your own worldview is. Um, when you're talking about the difference between the muscular class, I like that, and and the so-called elites, I was thinking about the crime rates, because you know, time and time again, we see these politicians who live in gated neighborhoods push for these soft on crime DAs. Not just politicians. George Soros, he's not living in a crappy neighborhood. He's got homes all over the world, and they're amazing. Um, getting soft on crime DAs like Alvin Bragg elected in Manhattan, where the crime rate continues to spiral. Ours is not the only city. I just mentioned it because it's the closest to me, and I. I've been there for you know over almost 20 years until recently and there is a horrific ugh, case in the news today on friday we ended the show with this horrific case um of oh gosh it was another terrible crime where this man came up behind this woman with a baseball bat a homeless crazed man and that. just yeah. swung it was out of seattle swung at her head like it was a baseball coming at him and cracked her skull and she went to the hospital that now we have something not totally similar, but another homeless, deranged guy. That's what the papers tell me in New York. New York Post has exclusive video of it, which will sh it's not of the crime. It's of the guy following this woman. She was uh, her name is Christina Yuna Lee, age 35, New York based creative marketing producer. His name is Asamad Nash, age 25, homeless career criminal. That's how he's described. The videotape we're showing for the, those who watch it on YouTube is he's following her. She gets into her, her, I don't know how many floor, six floor walk up in Chinatown. This is not a rich woman. He lays in wait. He follows her. He, he slowly he's following her behind and sort of waiting for her to take her next move. So she, he does, she doesn't see him following her up stairway after stairway. And then she when she opens the door to her own apartment, he manages to follow her in and stabs her to death. Uh, repeatedly. It's horrific. And the landlord of the building says, we have Alvin Bragg to, thanks, th to thank. This guy, 
he was out um, on on no bail on a crime he had just committed because this DA doesn't believe in bail and doesn't believe in locking people up. I mean, even in a lot of the serious cases, never mind the misdemeanors. And I think the one that he was locked up on wasn't one of the ones that Bragg will lock you up for. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, deterrence makes the world go round. And after the George Floyd death, there became the dominant narrative, which was false, that the police routinely and systematically <clears throat> and serially shoot unarmed black people. That was not true. In fact, of the 11 million arrests per year, Af- African-Americans that come in custody of, in that, of that group of 11 million people are no more likely to be shot by police than our other groups of the 11 million that are arrested. And so that, that was the narrative. And so in reaction in that hysteria of that looting and protesting, and we had 35 deaths, $2 billion in property damage. I think there were almost 2,000 police officers injured. There are these narratives of defund the police and the the uh, Soros-funded DA, especially in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but also other where St. Louis, Baltimore, Chicago. And out of that conundrum, we got no deterrence so that the criminal in a cost-to-benefit analysis decided that uh, if he was going to commit a crime, there was very little likelihood that he was going to be arrested. If he were going to be arrested, very little likelihood he was going to be put behind bars awaiting uh, indictment. And if he was indicted, he was probably going to be found innocent or charges dropped. If he was convicted, there was very little likelihood that he was going to jail for a traditional sentencing. And out of that step-by-step analysis and People that I know of commit crimes. I know some of them. They're very bright people, some of them. They just decided that the chances were that it was much more lucrative to hurt or maim or whether that's defined in material or psychological or satanic terms, whatever term we use, than face punishment. And we have no deterrence now. And you can't even talk about crime because it's been fused with the whole BLM woke movement. Yes. So I know a lot of Asian American people will write me and they'll say to me or call me and they'll say, why don't you write that in the big cities that the African-American male uh, uh, demographic is committing these crimes against Asians at a greater propensity than their six or seven percent of the population? And indeed, the FBI statistics show that in terms of hate crimes, the last year we had it. But you can't talk about that. Mm. In fact, uh, I've given a lot of interviews to Chinese language uh, Taiwanese groups. And this is a big hot to- uh, topic in that community that African-American males are committing anti-Asian hate crimes at a, a record level that is not proportionate to their demographic percentages, and yet no one can talk about. In fact, they, they talk the opposite. They just say hate crime. And it's the same thing in universities right now, Megan, that we have something called the Clery Act that because of a tragic death a few years ago, the federal government passed a law that said anybody on a campus that was a suspect uh, or had a criminal record or came in contact, the, the campus police had to report any crime, any susp- and they had to give a full description of the of of the suspect that simply disappeared that non-compliance in fact that the trump administration fined universities several million dollars that they were deliberately and so when i get things today and i get them almost daily because i'm an emeritus from the csu system and i work at stanford university if we had gone back two years ago we would have said 
bike stolen or gun used or shots fired and witnesses said the suspect and they would describe the suspect very clearly clothes worn ethnic uh, background male or female etc now they just say uh suspect description unknown mm-hmm. no we've seen and that so, in the national media and, and, the New York and Times. i think your point is that the, i think if i understand what you're saying and i agree entirely is they have weighed in and decided that the safety in this case of a co-ed who's may walk across a campus at night is not as important as virtue signaling that they don't want to be appearing to inordinately arrest somebody or demonize somebody of a particular race and therefore they're they're erring on that side and they don't really care about the other people and that's, well i mean that's and, what, and I, to that's your what point, i'm worried about to your point too the the, uh, the woman the asian woman who was shoved in front of the new york city oncoming subway train and you know to her death um, she was shoved by a black homeless man and the New York Times blacked out um, much of his history of crime and um, wasn't showing his picture. You know, they, they don't talk about the race and they don't show the picture because they're trying to sort of snuff out that dynamic where you know very well that if it had been, you know, a white man committing a similar crime on a person of color or anybody, you know, with some sort of more minority cultural background, they they would have highlighted it, right? This is this appears to be policy for them, and it I realize is. it's it's you you cross a line when you just gratuitously put up every criminal accused of random crime and just keep saying, and this is a black person, and this is a black. That's misleading too. A lot of white people commit crime too, but this is a new dynamic. This black on Asian hate crime problem. And we do no one any favors by ignoring it. I mean, it's we've seen a pattern with respect to it. And as you point out, the FBI has too. Now, Al Sharpton commented on not the race angle, but the increase in crime, because it, you don't you don't have to be the victim of something as horrific as this poor woman in Chinatown to to feel the crime creeping up in your neighborhood if you live near a big city. He's complaining about just going to the pharmacy and half the goods are locked up. I'd love to know, actually, if my audience is experiencing this in more rural parts of the country. I am out here in Fresno yeah. County. It's a, right? it's a it, joke. For sure, in New it's York. Like, you can't get deodorant. It's like, why, are people steering, yeah. stealing the secret? Like, why? Why are they stealing the secret? Yeah. So Al Sharpton goes on MSNBC to complain about this and then gets he takes a shot from Nic- Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's on the side of, you know, basically the criminals. But let's listen to Al and then I'll tell you what Nicole said. Uh, you go to a local pharmacy, drain weed or, or right aid, any of them. They have the little button there. Yep. You hit the buzzer and the guy comes over and unlocks your toothpaste. Yes. I mean, we're talking about basic <laughs> stuff. What did I miss that we now have to lock up toothpaste? He's got a challenge there because there is a debate in the criminal justice system. And there are those that are concerned, including me, about overloading the system and the jails with petty crime. But at the same time, you cannot have a culture where people are just at random, just robbing and stealing and is out of control and is put on the front page of newspapers, which only encourages others to do it. Okay, so that now Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project writes as follows in a tweet. This drumbeat for continued mass incarceration, <laughs> that's how she sees what he said, is really horrific to watch. A person stealing steak is not national news, and there have always been thefts from stores. This is how you legitimize the carceral state. What do you make of it? Well, it's predicated that she's an elite and she would not say that if somebody went into her upscale apartment and looted it like they do Walgreens. So all of these elites 
pontificate with the assumption they're never going to be subject to the consequences. And these are the consequences of our own ideology. Al Sharpton is very ironic because for years he advocated policies that their logical trajectory would lead to where we are now. Mm-hmm. The case of Hannah, if I could just, just very briefly talk about Nicole Jones, this is a person from the very beginning she entered uh, the university, the, she wrote a letter at the University of Notre Dame and said that white people were civilizational bloodsuckers. And it was, a, and it was very racist. She's herself of mixed ancestry. She's half white. Of course, we don't use the term white black in the way the left created a word white Hispanic when they wanted to demonize George Zimmerman and the Trayvon Martin. All of a sudden, he was white. He was not half uh, Peruvian because that wasn't a, a, a narrative. But my point is that when you look at her career, she said during the 2020 riots that the property theft was not really theft because it was sort of, uh, I guess that was a Marxist take on, on property owning. And then she has become the folk hero of redating iconic events in America. Remember, she was a 1619 hmm. architect, and she basically said that America was created uh, because it wanted to keep slaves keep holding slaves on like uh, the British that were supposedly going to emancipate. And there was no evidence for that. In fact, some of the strongest anti-slavery movement in the world had come from abolitionists in the North. But the point I'm making is, and then recently she tweeted and she gave another lecture in the Civil War when she said, and and we go back to, and she's saying basically it was racist because we didn't have it early, earlier. But she said that Civil War started in 1865. And I mm-hmm. thought to myself, you're the expert on the founding date and you got, you're wrong by four years when the Civil War, which is the most important racial, slavery, political, military conflict in history. And you don't even know when it started. And then she finally came into the news that she was offered at the University of North Carolina, a tenure position. She doesn't have a PhD. She has no record of scholarship. If it had been anybody that I know that applied, they would have to wait six years to get tenure. And she thought that uh, they had waited too long to offer that. There was too much controversy. So she was going to turn that down. And then she went to Howard University and apparently $20 million in various grants followed her to that position to endow her professorship. She's got a Pulitzer Prize. She's got a very lucrative MacArthur Award. Everything that she criticized, the society that she continually criticized has been so generous to her. And yet there's no gratitude. There's nothing. And she would get very angry at hearing that. But I think she needs to hear it. All these people, everybody is a human being. They're not part of a tribe in America. And you you make your own destiny and you're responsible for your own actions. And you should be criticized when you're found wanting. And she's she's got a record of very hysterical and angry and factually incorrect factually incorrect statements, and yet she wants to be considered a scholar worthy of instant tenure when she uh, goes to a university. Victor Davis Hanson, nobody's got your memory, your recall of the facts and your ability to use them in response to the the right questions and the the right inquiries. Uh, It's been wonderful. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. I want to tell you tomorrow we're going to take on an issue that a lot of our listeners and our viewers have been asking us to talk about. Uh, several states now are seeing legal challenges as these states take away the mask mandates, right? Especially in the schools and elsewhere, um, where parents of kids who they claim are Im- immunocompromised are filing lawsuits to try to stop the masks from coming off. 
Uh, So tomorrow we're going to hear from an attorney, from some parents and a school board member pushing back on this tactic. Um, And is this likely the next wave of the battle? Don't miss that. In the meantime, download the show, Megyn Kelly Show on Apple, Pandora, Spotify, and Stitcher. Subscribe at youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.